Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Later in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose hosted a conversation with Thomas Lindsay, senior legal counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. Rose and Lindsay discussed the environmental attorney's background, early career, legal triumphs, and current court court battles to secure civil rights for ecosystems by conferring personhood to aspects of nature under the law. And now for your environmental reports. U.S. grocery shoppers take note. EcoWatch is reporting on pesticides in produce. Environmental Working Group released its 2023 Shopper's Guide to Pesticides in Produce with its annual Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 lists of the conventional fruits and vegetables most and least likely to be contaminated with pesticides. And this year's list have important new additions. In particular, blueberries and green beans were both added to the Dirty Dozen, with green beans even testing positive for a neurotoxin insecticide um, (laughs) called acephate that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has already banned. Their Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 lists are based on tests of 47,000 samples of 46 fruits and vegetables, conducted by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration. This year's round of tests uncovered 251 different pesticides on almost 75% of non-organic fresh produce sold in the U.S. The worst offenders rated by the percent of samples with two or more pesticides, the average number of pesticides per sample, the most pesticides found in one sample of the product, or the total number of pesticides across all samples make up the Dirty Dozen. In 2023, the Dirty Dozen were strawberries, spinach, kale, collard and mustard greens, peaches, pears, nectarines, apples, grapes, bell and hot peppers, cherries, blueberries, and green beans. As a group, the Dirty Dozen tested positive for 210 different pesticides, and at least one sample of each item tested positive for at least 13 pesticides, with some contaminated with up to 23. Strawberries, spinach, and the trio of greens have hovered in the top spots for three years in a row. But blueberries and green beans broke with the past when they edged into the last two spots. The shuffling on the list's partly reflects the fact that the USDA does not test every fruit and vegetable every year. The last time blueberries were tested in 2014, 81% of samples tested positive for pesticides. During 2020s and 2021's testing, more than 90% of the samples were dusted in detectable 
pesticide residues. The two pesticides of greatest concern found on blueberries were phosmet and malathion. These are both a type of insecticide known as organophosphate. The recently banned chlorpyrifos is another example. Organophosphates like chlorpyrifos are such a concern because they can be toxic for the brain, harming especially children's cognitive development. Phosmet, which was found on more than 10% of blueberry samples, is currently banned in the European Union. Melathion, which was found on 9% of samples, is permitted there only in greenhouses. And organophosphate was also the most alarming pesticide found on green beans, with nearly 7% of samples testing positive for either acephate or methamidophis, which acephate breaks down into. This despite the fact that the EPA banned acephate for use on green beans in 2011. Next week, we'll provide the list of the clean 15. Thank you for listening to Eco Report right now. We're in our spring fun drive, our 2023 spring fun drive, and Cynthia Roberts and I are sitting here waiting for you to give us a call. Uh, we certainly would like to end. We're getting ready to wind down. Yes, right? please call us at 812-323-1200. You can also go online at wfhb.org. Absolutely. And um, we have a lady out there. She's called um, Kaylin Brower. Kaylin Brower. going to answer the phone, yeah. and I'm sure she's been she very uh, interested in environmental affairs, and we appreciate your uh, staffing the phone for us, Kaylin. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a favorite show that you like to listen to on uh, on? Oh, WFHB? I have a lot. I listen what? to the music shows, and um, I often listen to Reveal. Democracy Now, though, is my oh, favorite. Absolutely. I've got to have that. I know. I have yeah, that. same here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to point out that Juliana has been here uh I don't know how many years. Eight. Oh, okay. Quite a few. And she's picked up more and more roles. So we so appreciate the fact that she's putting together our script now and taking on duties as we've had a little bit of attrition. So it's always uh, helpful. We now have Zero Rose doing some uh, investigative reporting, which is wonderful. It is. So if you appreciate that, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or go online at uh, WFHB. Dot .org, and there's a donate button, uh, and uh, Kaylin will run you through. And you can't miss that big red do- donate <laughs> button because it's big yeah. and red. <laughs> That's true. That is true. So. so we'd like to continue on with our reporting. <clears throat> a bill that aims to create <clears throat> excuse me, a statewide energy plan passed the state Senate unanimously on March 21, 2023. HB one zero zero seven requires the state agency that oversees utilities to consider five things in most of its decisions: reliability, affordability, resiliency, stability, and environmental sustainability. The bill also cuts in half the amount of power utilities can buy from the grid during peak demand. That means they'd have to show they can generate about eighty five percent of their energy themselves or from contracts with other companies. It will be interesting to see what happens next. The legislature is promoting small nuclear and carbon capture. They are both very expensive and, if adopted, would require a big rate tax, a big rate hike. The legislature has been against wind and solar, even though they are both proven and the least expensive options going forward. 
An injunction Wednesday barring the U.S. Forest Service from beginning planned burns in the Hoosier National Forest this weekend was issued by a federal judge. The U.S. Forest Service was sued by Monroe County Commissioners and the Hoosier Environmental Council and the Indiana Forest Alliance, who stated that the prescribed burns would be occurring near steep slopes that drain into Lake Monroe one half hour south of Bloomington. Lake Monroe is the source of drinking water for nearly 150,000 Hoosiers. Documents submitted to the court contend that these planned burns will significantly exacerbate the degradation of these waters and threaten public health safety and recreational interest in the Lake Monroe watershed. Judge Tanya Walton-Pratt, who issued the order, stated that the Forest Service failed to take a hard look at the consequences of the planned burn. The Forest Service plans to hold three burns covering 3,500 acres of the Hoosier National Forest this year, with up to 13,000 acres over a 10 to 15 year period as part of the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project that we reported on last week. This may have some effect on what might be the final public input meeting happening on Monday, April 3rd from 1 to 2.30 p.m. at the Orange County Community Center in Paoli, Indiana, where activists and citizens will have access to public officials, including Senator Michael Brown, who has set up the event in response to grassroots pressure to reconsider the present forest plan to open up the process and consider preferred alternatives submitted by regional environmental groups. Well, I hope you're enjoying what we're reporting on, that Buffalo Springs Restoration Project is something that's um, really gathering steam, and a lot of people are really getting um, involved in that. So if you can make that big meeting uh, that's take, coming up on Monday, the April 3rd, it'd be nice for you to go there. We are in our spring fun break right now, and um, we are trying to raise uh, some money for the radio station. It's something that we're really uh, involved in, and it's something that we have to do. We do this every spring, and we also do it every fall. You can call us on uh, 812-323-1200, or you can go on your computer and uh, type in wfhb.org and hit that great big huge red button and uh, make a nice donation. And any amount is absolutely wonderful. It, and by the way, we do have a wonderful um, $240 gift, the hoodies. We gave them away last fall and we still have hoodies available. I have mine on right now. You probably see them. If you're in Bloomington, you probably see people wearing them around town. They are absolutely fantastic they've got this beautiful logo on the back and on the front and whenever i wear mine somebody always i like your hoodie (laughs) yeah they're zip up style and like the previous one um and um because i still have mine from a you know some years back but um the way to do this is either give the 240 straight out or set up a payment plan where it just comes out monthly and that amounts to 20 dollars a month so kaylin would be glad to guide you through that if you want to call us at 812-323-1200 or um, go online at wfhb.org we are getting near the end of the drive so it's a little more critical now if you're one of the people that likes to wait till the last minute we're we're almost there so please give us a call one of the wonderful things about wfhb radio for myself and i know this is true for many many people is the variety of music there 
I don't know how many radio stations there are in the United States that do the variety that we have. So true. Yeah, I, I heard everything. I mean, there's everything. I mean, if you like Native American music, you get Native American music. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. And I'm actually involved very occasionally now, but with the world music show. So pretty much anything counts, but that's where a lot of people are introduced into new styles. And I know some of the DJs this morning were talking about how it's actually influenced some musicians in, you know, what they incorporate into their own music. That's cool. I didn't I, know that. Yeah. <laughs> 812-323-1200. Please give us a call and thanks so much to all of those you have pledged already. Yes, thank you. Okay. And now let's listen in as Zero Rose discusses environmental issues with Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. Joining us today is environmentalist and attorney Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, an organization committed to advancing the legal rights of nature and environmental rights. He is also co-founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund and is widely recognized as the founder of the contemporary community rights and rights of nature movements, which have resulted in the adoption of several hundred laws across the United States and around the world. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. Yeah, good to be with you, Zero. But for about 10 years, I practiced convention, what I refer to lovingly now as conventional traditional environmental law, which basically means trying to enforce this patchwork of regulations and laws that we have in the United States that ostensibly were adopted to protect the natural environment. And so for, for about a decade, I represented about 100 different community organizations across the state of Pennsylvania that were targeted for things like frack wastewater injection wells or uh, factory hog farms or toxic waste incinerators, you know, all the hundreds of different single issue projects that communities face off against every day in the United States and around the globe. And most of that work had me representing these groups in front of you know, zoning hearing boards and administrative law judges and sometimes in federal court. But it was all trying to enforce these national environmental laws that most people think are there to actually protect the natural environment. But in reality, those laws actually operate just as negotiation zones for corporations to come in, basically shave some of the rough edges off whatever project they're considering a placement into that community, and then moving forward with the project anyway. And so even though we would win what I refer to as skirmishes on the, on the outside of some of these battles in terms of setbacks, you know, how many feet do you have to be back from a school if you're going to put in a factory farm uh, or parts per million, whatever you can emit into the air to the water as allowed or legalized by those federal and state environmental laws. We were basically in the trenches dealing with that kind of stuff. And after about 10 years of watching almost the complete failure of those federal and state environmental laws provide any kind of protection whatsoever for the communities that we were representing, that we decided to, to switch gears and do something else because it seems that the conventional traditional environmental law today is really about battling over those parts per million, how much a community is gonna get poisoned or polluted, not whether they're going to get poisoned or polluted at all, and so we came kind of to our own understanding of how the industry, the environmental legal industry is set up, who it actually serves. 
and uh, started to try to do something different other than do that work. So that's kind of a, how I ended up in the in the work that we do today. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people do have that blind trust in these supposed agencies that ostensibly are looking out for us. But things like the Flint, Michigan problem with their water has made it a little more conscious to people that it's not necessarily a, a bulwark to count on. Absolutely. I think in some ways it's natural that people rely on agency regulators and in fact, their own elected officials to do stuff to help them because that's our model of representative democracy is that we hire the best people. I mean, that's the myth. You know, we hire them through elections and agency regulators are supposed to be looking out for the communities themselves. But the real clients generally, or should I put it this way, that the laws underneath which those agencies operate are generally written by the largest corporations in the biggest industries in the United States. Because at the table, you know, you don't have communities sitting at the table when these regulations get negotiated or the laws controlling what the regulations do. And so it's kind of a farce to believe that we have anything close to a democratic system operating when the largest actors around the table at the legislature are, you know, chemical waste management and, uh, you know, uh, gas companies and uh, other agribusiness corporations like Smithville Foods or Hatfield Foods, those are the folks that you have continuously in that cycle who are writing the laws underneath which we operate. And then we as kind of like subordinate little mice are running around trying to enforce those legal requirements that have been put in place by the very industries that we're attempting to fight. So it kind of shouldn't come as a surprise, I think, to most that things are worse now from an environmental perspective than things were 40 years ago when the major environmental laws were passed, simply because we're not at the controls. We're not driving anything. We're on the receiving end. And so everything we do is defensive. And anybody that plays plays chess or any other strategic game knows that if you're always on the defensive, you're going to lose. And unfortunately, when we lose, our communities lose with us as well as the natural environment. Do you want to say anything about some of the earliest cases, things to do with standing in, in court or personhood for non-human entities? Yeah. So as, as folks and communities have been pushing back on this concept of being controlled basically by this higher system of law that replaces their values with the values of the industry leaders who are seeking to do X, Y, and Z in their community, there, there came a similar recognition that not only are we controlled as human beings to protect our own rights, so if we take steps to protect our own health, safety, and welfare and other rights like to sustainable agriculture and other things that we feel that we have, but that also that nature itself under this system of law that we have is, is basically treated as property, that you can buy and sell ecosystems. We, we don't think about it that way a lot of times. We think about you know a five-acre piece of land that we own, but that five-acre piece of land has ecosystems on it that don't just begin and end at those uh, parcel uh, edges either. And so nature has been treated as property under this Western system of law that we have for, for thousands of years. It's the bedrock of this system of law that people have rights, nature is property. And of course, we all remember that women used to be property and African-Americans used to be property in the 1800s uh, and still to some extent today with the remnants of those systems. But that this concept that nature is property means that the more nature you own, the more you can legally destroy. 
So, you know, what you learn in law school and folks know as well is that uh, property ownership is a bundle of sticks. And one of the sticks in that bundle is the right to destroy whatever you own. That's part of ownership. In addition to excluding others from using it, one of the one of the sticks is to just you can destroy the property that you have legally. And so in the US, we've tried to build an environmental protection system based on this property ownership view of nature and ecosystems. And I think the most exciting work happening in the US and in fact around the world right now is this rights of nature concept that nature itself, ecosystems, rivers, forests, mountains should actually have rights of their own. And it kind of bends our brains sometimes to think about nature having rights because we're used to, you know, the the US Bill of Rights, which recognizes free speech rights and right to practice religion of our choice and other rights contained within that US Constitution Bill of Rights. In addition, all of our states have a Bill of Rights. We sometimes forget that too, but those Bill of Rights and the US Constitution Bill of Rights are all based on human rights, uh, that rights accrue to us as people, as persons, just by fact of being human. Uh, when we think about rights of nature, we're actually talking about transforming nature from being rightless as property under the system that we have now to being rights-bearing, almost a civil rights-type protections for nature. So what would it look like if a river had a right to flow? Would that mean that damming the river is illegal uh, because it violates the right of the river to flow? What does it mean for the, the right of a uh, forest to exist and flourish? Kind of these constitutional standards. Does that mean that projects that would clear cut the forest or damage the ecosystem in other ways, would that make those activities illegal? And the answer is yes. It's basically a constraint on human activity by creating or recognizing rights for those natural systems or ecosystems. Just like with humans, if we have human rights, activities that happen that violate those rights, we have a legal solution to that, a remedy. Ideally, it doesn't always happen this way, of course, but when someone violates your rights, you can go into court uh, if you have the means uh, and sue to actually enforce those rights. What this rights of nature movement is talking about is basically that nature ecosystems would have certain rights. They're not the same rights as humans. Obviously, free speech doesn't apply or equal protection or due process. Those are human concepts or the right to vote. But concepts like the right to exist, kind of like a right to life for an ecosystem, a right to flourish, a right to thrive, uh, a right to restore itself in case there's a damage, uh, human-caused damage, a right to restoration. Uh, these, these types of remedies and types of rights that can be assigned or recognized on behalf of these ecosystems of nature. And the most exciting thing is that a lot of times we just talk about ideas but this idea has come to fruition. And the fruition that it's come to uh, has been back in 2006, the first community in the US passed a rights of nature law. It was a little place called Tamaqua Borough, just northwest of Philadelphia. It makes me feel old most days, but I actually wrote that law back in 2006. It was the first rights of nature law to be adopted by a municipality in the world, uh, recognizing that waterways within that community had certain rights to exist and flourish and be restored, those types of constitutionally based rights. And then to our surprise, I think that the model kind of morphed from that little community in Pennsylvania to Ecuador. And in Ecuador, we were called down to help with the drafting of the new Ecuadorian constitution. 
And it was the first time that this concept of rights of nature was written into a national constitution, which was then ratified by the people of Ecuador. There have now been a bunch of cases litigated, uh, the most famous one, I think, coming down only a couple months ago, which protected a, a forest preserve within Ecuador from mining permits uh, that had been issued that would violate the rights of that forest preserve to exist and thrive and the other standards that are within, within the Ecuadorian constitutional law. In addition to Ecuador, you have Bolivia that passed the rights of Mother Earth law. Uh, Panama recently signed a national law just a couple of weeks ago, uh, recognizing rights of nature in the country. It, it's going to come into effect after a year. That's how national legislation exists within Panama. There are courts in India, courts in Colombia, uh, and uh, local laws being passed in places like Brazil, uh, as well as other countries. And in the U.S. today, uh, there are three dozen communities, both tribal governments as well as municipal governments across the United States that have passed these rights of nature laws. I think it's the new kind of uh, trend. It's the emerging new environmental law paradigm that's eventually going to supplant or augment the existing environmental <laughs> For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. Zero's full interview with Thomas Lindsay will be available on the station's website in the next installment of our Eco Report Extra, soon to be posted on WFHB.org. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, maybe that's you, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn about Bloomington's local frogs during the Frog Songs class at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Saturday, April 1st from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Did you know that there are frogs that chirp, others whistle, croak, ribbit, peep, cluck, bark, and grunt? Springtime is a great time to appreciate the chorus of frog sounds. Sign up at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Learn about, learn more about the proposed Buffalo Springs Restoration Project and access Forest Service officials and Senator Mike Braun during a special public input meeting this Monday, April 1st at the Orange County Community Center. And that should be um, the third, excuse me, uh, located at 1057 Sandy Hook Road State uh, Suite 2 in Paoli, Indiana. This may be the last opportunity to put forth alternatives and voice opposition to the logging and burning planned for some 13,000 acres of the Hoosier National Forest. A sky dance and twilight hike will take place at Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve on Friday, April 7th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Join guest hike leader and naturalist Kathy Meyer for an evening of exploration along the boardwalk trails. A chorus of amphibians will be the backdrop as you search for the Woodcock's famous mating ritual, the Sky Dance. 
take the full pink moon hike at Brown County State Park on Friday, April 7th from 8.30 to 10 p.m. Join the naturalists for a guided night hike around Lake Ogle to learn the history and folklore of the full pink moon. Trail 7 is considered rugged in the dark and will be muddy in spots. Wildflower Weekend will take place at McCormick's Creek State Park on Friday, April 7th through Sunday, April 9th. Workshops, hikes, and fun activities are scheduled each day. To see the full schedule, go to the DNR calendar website. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Zero Rose. Our feature was prepared and presented by Zero Rose. Our script today was assembled by Julianne Daly and edited by Kate Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider. Juliana Daly and Zero Rose compiled our events calendar. Kate Young produced today's show and edited the audio. Don't forget, we're in our spring fun drive. We'd love to have that at the very end of our show. We would love to have you give us a nice little donation. Whatever amount, it doesn't make any difference. Yes, every dollar works for us. So whatever is comfortable for you, you can call us at 812-323-1200 or go online to wfhb.org. That's something you can do anytime, day or night. And they can walk <laughs> in here too. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you can come oh, here and make a, a gift. But thank you for tuning in and thank you for all our supporters. Yes. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Tomorrow, April Fool's Day, so keep your wits about you. (laughs) And this is Eco Report.